A Toothache on Zenob by Boyd Ellenby. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Toothache on Zenob by Boyd Ellenby. Strange to think that from twenty-odd light-years away other eyes see our own sun blazing in the middle of a familiar constellation. Pen Khan sat in the signal dome, idly waiting while his friend adjusted the dials of the receiver. The recording tape spilled over the table in loops of aluminium. Doesn't this job get dull? he inquired. Nortonal turned the fifth dial a few degrees and glanced upwards. Depends on your interest. It's true, this is just routine space sweep, but noise from space is amazingly variegated. Just one more sec to scan tonight and I'll be through. What's the matter with you, Pen? Your face looks a little lopsided. Penn tried to grin and fingered the slight swelling on his cheek. My face will never be my fortune, I guess. I don't know what's the matter. Just ache. Even at his best, Penn's family loved to remind him he was an ugly young man and he had none of the rounded placidity of features which was the ideal of his race. His olive skin stretched too tightly over his cheekbones and his black eyes peered too immensely from their deep sockets. It helped very little that he happened to be extremely intelligent. Penn covered the aching place with his hand and tried to concentrate on the emerging spills of tape. As a matter of fact, he had been having severe periodic toothaches for six months now, but had never spoken of it. Suddenly he bent forward. Hold it! Just a minute! Let me see that! Nortonal raised one eyebrow. Don't let it get you, lad. Listening to space is apt to make you jumpy. Your friends over at Atomics wouldn't like that. More than once I've thought I was finding some sort of sense in all this chatter, but it never pans out. It's just noise. There may be other inhabited planets besides Zenob, just as Bidaga claims. But if so, they aren't talking. Stop! Watch the tape, said Penn. Nortonal shrugged his shoulders, but he picked up the tape and watched as it trickled through his fingers. The machine was recording short bursts of energy, separated by distinct pauses. Two and two, remarked Penn, are four. Three and three are six. Four... I know, I've been to kindergarten too. Four and four are eight. Has your aching face affected your mind? You ought to submit yourself for treatment. He reached to shift the scanner, but Penn grabbed his hand. Can't you see? Somebody's trying to show us that they know how to add. Someone out in space. Keep watching. I wonder if they use duodecimal system or what. Where is it coming from? Nortonal dropped his sceptical pose and watched the emerging tape in silence. The growing table of symbols built all the simple additions up to 10 plus 10 by the laborious accumulation of dots. Then it began again, systematically. One and one are two, two and two. Penn turned his wondering eyes on his friend. Is this trick? Joke you rigged up for my benefit? Nortonal shook his head and his voice was hardly a whisper. No, that stuff is really coming through space. Through phase space. Twice more, the table of additions appeared. Then after a brief pause came simple multiplications. Hour after hour, the signals continued, endlessly repeated, and shortly after midnight, the two could recognise the periodic table of chemical elements with atomic weights and numbers of isotopes. If those numbers which follow atomic weights are abundances, said Penn, composition of their planet is not quite same as ours. Look how rare 235 is. Where do you suppose this is coming from? You guess, said Nortonal. He waved his arm towards the transparent dome through which the stars shone and grinned. 
From little data I have so far, signals might be coming from somewhere in Weaver, perhaps from neighbourhood of Topaz, but it's too early to be sure of anything. Suddenly a marked change occurred in the pattern of the signals. The clear symmetry of mathematics ended and was replaced by a formless jumble, but a jumble whose repetition suggested that it, too, contained a pattern if it could once be glimpsed. Metres and metres of tape piled up, and the young men stared at it in frustration. Nortonal stood up in sudden decision. Bidaga is right. There must be intelligent life in another part of galaxy. We need help, Pen. We can't decipher this stuff, and yet it may be key to basic vocabulary. We need mathematicians, linguists, semanticists. I'll put out a call to director. He lifted a finger to activate the visphone on his wristband, but before touching it, he glanced at his friend in some concern. But you don't look well. Perhaps you ought to go home and get some sleep? Penn shook his head. No, pain will probably be gone by morning, and at time like this sleep would only be gift from evil ones. I'm going to get Bidaga. He'll be more used to us than a dozen semanticists. Call him on visphone. You know he can't wear one. He's at cave tonight, holding ceremony. I'll go after him. All right, Penn, but remember, government will probably disapprove of this business. Whatever you do, don't tell your father. Penn grounded his copter at the outskirts of the city, then turned his back to the glowing lights and walked north across the darkened fields towards the cave. The early morning sky blazed with stars, and ahead of him, low on the northern horizon, gleamed the sprawling constellation of Weaver. He had never been able to force his imagination to see many of the constellations in their completeness, and in the patterns of stars which his pastoral ancestors had conceived as Weaver, Soa, Horntooth. He could see only random clusters of suns. He watched it now as he walked over the rutted earth and suddenly the pattern took shape so that he could discern the old lady's shuttle and at its tip that brilliant yellow star Topaz which might that very moment be sending its signals through the galaxy. How many planets revolved around Topaz? He stopped for the field ended in a sharp bluff which descended to a narrow valley. Across the valley's floor was the entrance to the cave. He could see the bobbing lights of candles down there and hear a muffled chant of many voices. He hoped ceremony would end soon so that he could consult his friend. Once again he felt impatient that Bedaga should have to be met in person just because, as a healer, he could not wear a visphone into cave. Bedaga was really more progressive than many scientists, but the culture of Zenob still had a strongly anti-materialistic, one might say anti-scientific tinge, and no machine of any kind could ever be brought into any of sacred places. Cave had been the chief place for ceremonies of, of those living in Larzen area for so many thousands of years that even the historians did not know of a time when it was not in use. It was so old, some heretics said, that it had outlived its usefulness and was not even a safe place to be in. The stars were fading and the northern sky was paling when the chanting stopped in cave below. People filed out silently, extinguishing their candles as they reached the opening, and last of all came the healer. Bedagger! Pen called softly. Up here! The tall figure paused, then ran lightly up the steps out in the sloping hill. Has something happened? Hurry! My copter is waiting back there, and I'll take you to the signal dome. Then I'll have to go home. If I'm not there for breakfast, my father will begin another lecture on the depravity of youth. Bedagger's eyes twinkled. Premier Khan is pretty conscious of his responsibility to nation, Pen. 
but perhaps 18 years ought to be more respectful of 50. I am nearly the latter myself, you know. But what has happened? Penn raised his arm and pointed towards Weaver. We're getting signals. We think they may come from some planet of Topaz. Bidaga clasped his strong hands over his breast. His black hair, curling over a high olive forehead, was held in place by the narrow green band of his calling. Under his little moustache, his mouth was firm and serene. His grey eyes were exalted as he stared at the fading yellow star. At last, he said. The bluish sun of Zenob had risen by the time Penn got home. He sat through the family breakfast with his parents and sister, thankful that his night's absence had apparently not been noticed. Penn's father, old Premier Khan, represented, the old man liked to think, the ideal of Zenobian maturity. The placidity of his mind was reflected in the soft roundness of his unlined face and his full lips curved at the corners in perpetual contentment. Like most of his countrymen, he had never felt any conflict between his own impulses and the customs of society and never in his life had he needed the ministrations of a healer. In his usual benevolent mood this morning, Premier Khan entertained his family with his meditations on his favourite theme, the glories of Zenob's history and the perfection of her knowledge. They listened to his remarks in patient silence. As he sipped at the last of his cup of fragrant akali, he tried to make a kindly remark to his son. And what progress is your institute making towards practical atomic power, Penn? Foundations of this work were laid down more than 200 years ago, and government would be glad to have demonstration at any time. We're a little uncertain, sir, when that will be. We want to be sure before our first trial that we have checked against even vaguest possibility of starting widespread chain reaction. The Premier frowned, set down his cup and touched his napkin to his lips. But how could this occur? It is not at all likely, but if, for example, as has been suggested, crust of our planet should contain large quantities of some heavy element with properties we don't know about, something related to 235 or 238, for instance, and easily fissionable, our very first trial might prove disastrous. Nonsense, nonsense, said the Premier. Complete chemistry of our planet was worked out and tabulated more than 300 years ago. There were great chemists in those days, and since then no further research has ever been necessary. There could not possibly be any elements which we don't know about. It is not seemly for you young men to be questioning work of great geniuses of the past. Penn's sister Soma had been silent, as befitted a woman. Now she said, Father, I have been told that long ago Sakar Talat, after life spent in philosophical research, gave warning to government. Trouble with you, my dear, and the Premier patted his pretty daughter's arm, is that you don't realise women usually lack spiritual insight necessary to interpret veiled words of ancients. Of course, I admit our healers can foresee future, but they don't always describe it in unambiguous language. Actually, Sakar issued two warnings, but they obviously did not mean what they seemed to at first glance. First was that we are in danger because we only think we have mastered all basic knowledge. Second was that there are undoubtedly other worlds in the universe, and one of them will one day affect destiny of Zenob. Taken at face value, these are obviously both false. As to the first, no new knowledge has been added to our sciences for generations, in spite of the fact that inter ages ago showed us how to use faculty of precognition. As to second, it is clearly foolish to think Sakar meant other worlds in a physical sense. 
He must have meant spiritual worlds. He turned again to Penn, who had risen from the table and was waiting politely. And when can we have that demonstration? Within a month? I'll speak to the director today, sir. The throbbing in his cheek was becoming evident again, and he touched his face gently. What's the matter, Penn? said his mother. Nothing. My face hurts little. Ignore it, his father ordered. I won't have any maladjustment in Lord Khan's family. He picked up the gold-headed cane, which was his badge of office, and strode out of the room. Penn managed to spend a second night with the sleepless group of experts at the Signal Dome, but fatigue and the growing pain in his cheek sent him home again just before dawn. Softly he ran up the ramp to the second floor into his bathroom to the medicine chest. In Penn's family, a transient illness was an embarrassment. A persistent illness was a disgrace. It had always been his mother's pride and his father's boast that in the Khan household, the contents of the medicine shelves were never needed and that the doors of the cupboard remained closed from one year to the next. It was with a sense of guilt, then, that Penn pressed a spot on the green-tiled wall to slide back the cupboard doors and picked up an ivory box from which he took a bolus of pain-killing plant extract. He swallowed the huge pill, then took another, a double dose, this time, for he knew the pain would never yield to anything less. He stood shivering for a few moments, waiting for the drug to take effect. He looked up and realised that his sister was standing at the open door, watching him sympathetically. Pen, she said, you're ill. Won't you talk it over with me? I would talk it over with the evil ones if I thought it would help this pain. It grows worse and worse. Have you told father yet? He could arrange for healer. No, he shouted. I don't want him to know. He'd only begin lecture on his shame, his grey hairs, how all pain comes from unruly mind. Why don't I put myself in tune with group? Old familiar story. But I know this is something different. But Penn, you know yourself surely that since you've got into Atomics Institute, you have changed. You aren't perfectly adjusted anymore. You worry about things. He touched his swollen face and smiled at her placatingly. Don't worry, Soma, or you'll get lines in your forehead and father would never bear the shame of having two maladjusted children in the family. I'm stronger than you think. Last year, when I passed fire test, I stood flames longer than any of boys in my class, longer even than Nortonal. But this is different. Trouble with Zenob is that we don't have any biology or any real medicine. Pen, how can you say such things? Your best friend is healer. You know, I haven't said anything against healers, but only ailments they can cure are those that originate in mind, and they can't really do anything for purely physical ailments. But Dagger has admitted as much to me. He wants to change all that. He thinks time is ripe. But Pen, our healers can foresee future. You know that Anta Penhab proved that five centuries ago. Ain't it was worst disaster that ever befell Zenob, Penn shouted. He put out his hand to restrain his sister, who was attempting to struggle to her feet in horror. Oh, Soma, I guess I'm just heretic, but listen to me. Sure, Ain't a Pentab proved conclusively that such phenomena as telepathy and precognition are real. And what was the result? Members of cult used it as argument and launched campaign to stop scientific research completely. They nearly succeeded too. Medical research has never been resumed on any large scale and chemistry and physics only last century. Soma sighed. You shouldn't get all excited, Pen. Come down into living room and stretch out on couch. I'll rub forehead. 
You may be ugly old atavism, but you're only brother I have, and I want to keep you. In the big living room, Soma drew the curtains from the lucite walls that looked over the white city. The early sunlight came in, warm and faintly blue, soothing. She put foam pillows under his aching head and drew up a footstool beside him. She stroked his forehead and he was beginning to doze lightly when a muted chime roused him. He activated his wrist dial to find Nortonal's grave face looking at him. Penn sat up. What have you found? Something. Can you come here now? Penn struggled to his feet. Just give me a minute to clear my head. Don't go, Penn, Soma cried. You're not well. It's nearly breakfast time too. Don't go. What will I tell father? But the door had closed, and from the window, Soma watched Penn's copter rise above the rooftops and glide out of sight. In the signal dome, Penn found the specialists still at work, pale and tense from lack of sleep. Some still conferred over pages of mathematical equations. Some watched the tape, which monotonously continued to record the symbols. Bedagger strode forward to meet him. We've finally found key to vocabulary, Penn, and others are at work now on the main body of message. Signals are undoubtedly coming from one of planets of sun we call Topaz. It has system of nine planets, and waves are being sent from third. All my life I've believed that there were other planet systems like ours, and other intelligences in the galaxy. But now that one of them is signalling us, I can hardly make myself believe it. From the top gallery, high in the dome, Nortonal ran down the spiral ramp. We're getting it now, Bedagger. Planet of Topaz is signalling this entire sector of the galaxy, hoping to find planets with intelligent life on them. They wish to communicate, to exchange information, and they offer to visit any planet which would welcome them. Then they can travel through space? Yes, they say they are only 27 light years away. Bedagger's shoulders drooped in disappointment. But if these signals have been 27 years on way, it would take us another 27 years to answer them. I shall never live to see their visit. But you don't understand, Bedagger. I forgot this isn't your field. These waves are coming through phase space, and they go much faster than speed of light. They reach us almost instantaneously. Penn began to laugh. He felt light-headed, and for some reason amused. I suppose you all remember my father Jalu's lecture in which he demonstrated mathematically that life or intelligence on any planet except Xenob was impossible. He pointed out that unique properties of carbon compounds which we are composed could never be duplicated on another planet and how remarkable circumstances of our having ice eye, only form of solid water that can float, had allowed life to evolve on Xenob alone. Poor father, this will be hard on him. Of course, you are not going to send answer. Bedagger seemed to be in a meditation, but now he spoke in a commanding tone. Of course we must reply. Nortonal gasped and stepped away. But we haven't right. That would be heresy. I claim right. Centuries ago, healers dreamed of this day, and as a healer, I dare to claim right. We reply to these signals and tell people of Topaz Planet that intelligent men do exist on our own world. Nortonal's eyes had become dreamy and speculative. I am not certain that we could reply, even if we dared, he said. He looked uncertainly at the other microwave technicians to see fear looking from their faces too. At last one spoke. I think we could change over to transmission through the phase space in about half an hour. If we had orders, he hastily turned away, afraid of his own thoughts. 
Responsibility is mine, said Bedagger. I speak with authority of my calling. We will send same set of mathematical tables we have received, and then periodic tables of elements as they exist here. Penn felt confused, battered with warring emotions, and too tired to think or speak, but Norton all moved with abrupt decision. If you order it, Bedagger, we will try. He turned to his technicians. We'll start work immediately. Nearly an hour passed before the wave modulator was reported ready. In the highest level of the dome, they watched nervously as Nortonal turned up the power and worried the dials. All set, he said. There was no reply. In a dead silence, he touched the button and started an impulse driving towards the star topaz. The door behind them opened with a crash and Premier Khan strode in, his face contorted with an anger he had never shown before in his life. Despicable traitors, he shouted. Turn off that instrument. White-faced, one of the technicians obeyed and the power indicators dropped. Can it be true what has come to my ears, what I see now with my own eyes, that you would dare to reply to messages that come from foreign planet? Bedagger's commanding figure grew even taller. Premier, I speak now not as a Bedagger man, but as Bedagger healer and I must give you my warning. Zenob cannot escape contacts with other worlds. In my opinion, Zenob has reached fateful turning point in its history. We must face fact that our knowledge of physical science is not adequate. Our fossil fuels are nearly gone, and we must have atomic power. But frankly, our physicists don't know enough to design safe atomic reactors. And at rate science progresses on Zenob, they won't know enough for centuries. All this could be remedied by exchange of information with this other world. As he faced Bedagger, the Premier trembled with rage. His usual placid face was contorted. Bedagger, you could be unfrocked for that. Zenoff would be better off if healers would confine their opinions and activities to healing and leave politics to those whose business it is. Government will not base its decisions based upon visions of dreamers who have dwelt too long in cave. Penn closed his eyes as a wave of agony broke over him. The voices receded. Dimly, he was aware that he was falling. Pain and shouting together faded away into darkness. On Earth, at the listening post on Long Island, Joe Webber sat before his recorder, intent on the noise from space. The chief anthropologist studied the star map on the wall as he asked his question. Have you got anything at all, Joe? The technician shook his head. Nothing but noise. I've only been beaming them for four days and our schedule calls for a week on each sector. I'll keep on as planned, but I'm positive that the star systems in the Lyra sector are not inhabited in any sense we would recognise, or if there is life there, it hasn't developed enough of a science for them to know they're being signalled. The anthropologist sighed. It may be a hopeless task. It may be several lifetimes before we locate systems similar to ours. I had hoped to find some in my day. Don't be discouraged, Professor. I'll start hitting Cygnus for you, and maybe we can find something there. Yesterday, for a minute, I thought I had something in Lyra. In the middle of the random noise, suddenly I came across what looked like dot 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 dot. It was clear as crystal and much louder than the noise, but then it lapsed into the usual nonsense. Pure chance at work, of course, but for a minute, my hair stood on end. Well, it's all in the day's work. I'll just keep sending our stuff. Of course, said the anthropologist, there might be intelligent people in the sector you're working right now, but they might be like the Zuni. The Zuni? asked Weber. 
The Zuni are a large village of American Indians who live in New Mexico, right next to what used to be a big Indian reservation for the Navajos, a typical inward-looking culture. Now the Navajos, although they still keep their own language and religion, are an outward-looking culture, interested in the rest of the world, but the Zuni are not. For them, the boundaries of the world are the walls of the Zuni village. They wouldn't bother to listen to a message from outer space, much less reply. Can't be very bright, said Joe. Some of them have made the highest scores on the Tromovich intelligence test that have ever been recorded. It's not a matter of intelligence, but attitude of the culture. Well, said Joe, let's hope most of the worlds of space have outward-looking cultures. He turned back to his transmitter. Penn found himself lying on a couch. He tried to get up and felt his father's hands at his shoulders restraining him. Don't move, Penn, said his mother. You fainted and they brought you home. She lifted his head and let him sip a cup of hot akali. After a time, his father addressed him with usual kindness. We cannot delay any longer, Penn. Your mother and sister and I are all agreed. You must undergo ceremony. What is proper thing to do for you, I don't know, but Bedagger believes he can help you. This crisis in our world is making us all ill, and it is no wonder that you, being young, should suffer more acutely than the rest of us. Penn tried to laugh. Would you trust me to Bedagger? Yes, I would. Although his views on world affairs are perverse and dangerous, he is a good healer, and he has your best interests at heart. Your son is very ill, Lord Calm. If I am able to help him, would you be willing to consider possibility, at least, that wisdom of healer is not confined to human body alone? Premier Khan brushed his hand across his eyes. In the last few days he had suddenly become an old man and his mouth was drawn and tensed. I cannot tell, Bedagger. I am tired and confused. I no longer seem to be sure what is true and what is right. Penn opened his eyes to speak to Bedagger. Do you think you can cure me by ceremony alone? I have cured people who are much more ill than you are, but your case is serious because you have delayed so long. It may be that we should not rely on ritual alone, and that it would be wiser to use knife. Lord Calm gasped in horror. Never! Have you lost faith in your own art? Of course, none of us likes to use knife, since very few minds are skilled enough to control infection likely to follow. No, first we shall hold ceremony, just as our tradition counsel us, tonight. The muted chime of the visphone interrupted them. The Premier touched his wrist and the gaunt face of Nortinal appeared in the dial. Signals have entered new stage, sir. Messages coming at present state that Topaz Planet wishes to visit any planet inhabited by intelligent race. They say they have phase space drive for spaceships, but in all their searching have not found even one inhabited world. They say they want to know that they are not alone in the universe. The Premier's face worked. I cannot say what is right. Later, I will decide. After ceremony. Are you ready, Pen? Pen covered his face with his folded arms. All right, he whispered. Sooner, better. Deep in the valley north of the city, Cave yawned. For thousands of years, its narrow mouth had been opened to the healers and the participants in the ceremonial ritual. The age of Cave was unknown. Some said as old as the planet itself. Great rocks formed the inner walls, which ascended to a low domed ceiling, and occasionally a handful of gravel trickled down the walls to the bottom, where a small stream still worked at hollowing out the stone. At the back of the cave was the hearth, and across the floor were ancient stone benches waiting for the friends and family of the patient, for by tradition only patient and healer approached the hearth itself. 
The others, whose wills and hearts were to unite for one brief night to heal the sickness, sat apart in a broad circle where they could see the ceremony and the chant of their voices could float back to the ears of the sufferer. As the sun set, Penn was carried into cave on a litter. His father and mother, his sister, his father's collaborators in the government and representatives of the whole community filed down the valley into the entrance where Bidaga stood and each person, clad for this occasion only in a robe of animal fur, as he approached the opening extended his hands to show that he had removed his wristband and lifted his arms to show that no material product of modern technology had been taken inside to profane cave. They all respected the ancient proverb, what immortals want new, they make new. Each one lit his candle at Bedagger's flame and silently took his place in the circle. Penn had not been inside cave since his early childhood, but it seemed a familiar place since its description formed part of many of Zenob's myths and was part of her history. The age-old figures scratched on the walk and filled in with coloured earths had been made by his remote ancestors at a time when their only weapons were bows and arrows pictured there and the stone-tipped spears with which they hunted their game. In the flickering light of the fire he could recognise the lithe toda and the great tusked calamat animals which had been extinct for many ages. How vividly old ones had portrayed these animals and the ritual of their hunts. The wood fire which Bedagger had kindled with a primitive wooden drill burned on the hearth and above his head, through a rift in the ceiling, Penn could see a narrow band of sky and a sprinkling of stars. Keep your head pointed towards the fire, said Bedagger, and lie quiet. Ritual has no value unless we observe it strictly. He gave Penn a warm potion from an earthenware cup which made him feel sleepy. Bedagger began to chant, his bass voice reverberating from wall to wall each syllable a sonorous musical note which was answered at intervals by the watching group of well-wishers. A wooden bowl filled with coarsely ground grain was passed from one person to another and each one placed a few grains on his tongue, some on his forehead and threw a token pinch of the flower over his left shoulder. An hour passed, two. The stars above shifted their position and still Badaga chanted, never hesitating, never stumbling over the archaic words. Midnight passed and the stars grew pale. Through the roaring in his ears, Penn heard the healer kneel on the rock floor beside him. Then he felt Bedagger's strong fingers on his shoulder. How is it with you, my son? Penn groaned, unable to speak. The pain was not alleviated. It was greater than ever. The soles of Bedagger's sandals scraped as he stood up again. Bring knife, he called. In his roaring darkness, Penn stirred. Vaguely, he sensed the murmuring of the watchers. Then someone else came near, and Bedagger's voice rose again. Immortals, bless knife! Fingers pried open his jaw, probed at the misshapen gum, sending fiery flashes of agony into his brain. Then a hard edge of pain struck, cutting, releasing a flood of warm wetness in his mouth. Yet all seemed to be happening far away. He sensed Bedagger bending near once more. Boy is going fast, infection is deep. Another voice, move him to experimental hospital. He would not live to get there, a pause. Go, bring forceps and bone knives, hurry. A long roaring darkness, then new movement around where he lay, a sudden voice that he dimly recognised as his father's. Stop, what is that tool in your hand? A new device for extracting teeth, came Bedagger's calm, resonant voice with which we may save your son's life. Shocked murmurs all over the hall, topped by his father's shout of outrage. In cave? In hands of Hela? 
Bidaga replied, What immortals want new, they make new. Here and now, in my hands, they end our years of darkness. Let immortals confound me if I lie. The multitude in the cave roared their approval, and Premier Khan hesitated. He appeared to be struggling within himself. As the echoes died away, a pebble rolled from a ledge, dislodged by the sound, and fell at Bidaga's feet. A second pebble fell, and a boulder, which had rested above the hearth for untold centuries, shifted its position. With a shout, Bidaga flung himself over Penn's body as the boulder trembled and fell, crushing the life from the bodies of both men. Dust rose and a rumble began near the ceiling. Run! cried Premier Khan. Run for your lives! As the others ran from the cave, Lord Khan rushed to the huge rock laying upon his son, but he had no hope. Neither Penn nor Badaga could ever move again. A trickle of sand pattered to the floor, and with the last backward glance, Lord Khan ran from the cave. Boulders rained from the ceiling. The Premier had just reached the outside when a huge slab of rock crashed into the floor against the entrance. On the slope nearby, Penn's mother and sister wept silently. Lord Khan stood motionless a long while. At last he spoke. Cave is sealed, he said. Let it never be opened again. Immortals have willed that my son should rest here forever with impious Bidaga. Turning his face to the sky, he stood. He shook his fist at the bright spark of topaz in the paling north. So much for new things and foreign stars, he said between his teeth. This day's evil is enough. They extinguished their candles and went slowly up the valley path towards the city. 28 years later on Earth, an astronomer comparing recent plates taken of the constellation Lyra noticed that Vega, its brightest star, had increased in brightness by a slight amount. The event was not especially remarkable. There are on average 25 novas reported every year in our galaxy, but Vega was one of the stars to be visited during the next decade by one of the survey ships now in mid-voyage. There's one place they won't have to stop now he said to a colleague showing him the plates. I don't suppose it matters. What's one star, more or less, when they all turn out to be the same? No planets or barren ones, no stopping place for man. I suppose you're right, said the astronomer, staring glumly at the waste of immensity of the photograph in front of him. End of Toothache on Zenob by Boyd Ellenby. Recording by Andrew Gibson, Sujo, jellypie.co.uk forward slash audiobooks.